good morning. A question for you. How many of you would say that Jesus is my Savior? Show hands. Jesus is my Savior. It's a lot of you good. That's really good. How many of you might even remember the time where you decided, you made the decision to enter into a relationship with Jesus? Lots of hands. That's good. One more question. How many of you, maybe, maybe that was in a church service? In a church service? A few. Just a few. That's cool. That's cool. For those of you that were in church, it, it might have, maybe I'm guessing it probably happened like this, that the pastor or the speaker gave a message, and then at the end of his message, there was a time of prayer, and every head is bowed, no eyes are looking, and maybe he extended an invitation for you to, to raise a hand, maybe to, to walk through a prayer with him that sounded something like this, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge my sin, I repent of my sin, and my need for a Savior, and I ask Jesus into my heart. Something like that? Sound familiar? Something we call the sinner's prayer, and that was just an altar call. And what would you say if I said that, uh, that question, did that prayer save you? Yeah, maybe it didn't. So as you know, Southside is part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the, the CNMA. And we believe that the gospel is all about Jesus. The Bible continually points to Jesus, both in the Old and the New Testaments. We just sang a song about that. Today is the first of a four-week series where we identify Jesus as our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. That's what we call the fourfold gospel. It's the centrality of Jesus. And today what we're going to explore in a little more detail is that first statement. Jesus is our Savior. Now from the beginning, God wanted it to be clear that Jesus would be the Savior, right? The name Jesus literally means Savior. And in the first gospel, when Jesus was going to be born, the angel of the Lord, he told Joseph and Mary what to name their son that would be born. They didn't get to decide for themselves. He told them. He said, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we see in Scripture that the name of Jesus is the only name that can save us. He is an exclusive Savior. In Acts 4.12, the Apostle Peter proclaims that there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Jesus himself testified to this. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So we see this. Jesus is the only way. There is no way around this. And what I just described as talking about a church and the pastor extending that invitation was something that we call an altar call. An altar call. It is, it's an appeal for an immediate public response to a sermon that was just preached. And we've probably seen a number of altar calls in our lifetimes. The appeal usually signifies a commitment of some sort, and it can involve raising your hand. It can involve maybe signing a, a commitment card. It can involve going into a remote location with some people, maybe coming up to the front of the auditorium. But the invitation usually is to come forward and accept Christ as your Savior. And I remember 
Uh, some years ago, there was a particular experience where my wife and I were in this church. It was a big church, and there was an evangelist that came, and he gave a message, and it was a very emotional moment. And he had, I think he counted down because he invited people to come to the altars. There was music playing, very passionate in the background. It was loud and it was intense. And he said, on the count of three, I want you to run to the altar, run to Jesus. And when he did that, there was a rush of mass of people moving to the altar, just running. And it was like urgency. It was like panic. And as we're running, he said, hurry, hurry, run to Jesus. And I remember that, and it was really cool at the time to see people flooding, running up to the front. And I know that some really cool moments happened out of that time, but as I left and as I looked at things going back into there, I've also had a lot of questions about that. Because I've seen some of the fruits of that was good, and a lot of it really was not so good. And I know as Pastor John is wrapping up his message last week, that I got the sense that there were many that were expecting an altar call of some sort so that people could respond because we often think, how are people, how can they respond if we don't give them this invitation? And I want to ask you a question. Where is this idea of an altar call found in the Bible? Where did Jesus ever give an altar call to invite people to respond? Where do we see that in the lives of his disciples or the apostles? Do you ever see that? Where did this idea of asking Jesus into our heart come from? Or the idea of the sinner's prayer? Do you ever think about that? Now, at Southside, we rarely do altar calls. And there's a reason for that. It's not because they're bad. It's not because they're wrong. We just don't really do them, and there's a reason for that. Can anybody tell me when the altar calls first started? We have a little history lesson. Anybody know? Hmm? Nope, a little further than that. Okay, some good guesses. It started back about 200 years ago, around the time of the Second Great Awakening which was a time of great revival in, in the nation. God was moving and he was doing stuff. And, and at the end of this period, um, the altar calls became more prominent. And they were popularized by a man named Charles Finney. And Finney had a, a preaching style that was very emotionally charged. And he used a number of methods in his services that were designed to stir up emotion, to stir up the human will in order to get a response. So a lot of times by the end of his messages, people weren't responding so much to the invitation to come to Jesus so much as they were just caught up in the heat of the moment and responding out of emotion. And during this time, Finney was known to criticize a lot of other pastors and ministers for not being able to produce the same kinds of results that he could. He thought they should be able to produce revival if we were really doing our job. So it became all about man's efforts to produce results, to create converts, and a lot less of God. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And at the end of his life, Finney rejected the fruits of his altar calls because he saw that many that came up to the front did not go on to lead Christ's lives, but they went right back to where they were before. And interestingly enough, statistics kind of show us the same kind of picture. 
Uh, statistics recently taken from a number of altar calls over many years, just in the last 10, 20 years or so, show that as many as 95% of people that come to the altar go right back to the lives that they were living before. 95%. That's kind of crazy. And unfortunately, what we've done in many cases is we've given people through this altar call and through saying the sinner's prayer, we've given them a false sense of security, allowing them to think that, that they are safe, that they're going to go to heaven, and they really have no concept of the gospel. And the fact is that millions of people who have prayed that sinner's prayer at some point, millions who have prayed that prayer at some point in their lives and believe that they're going to go to heaven may be utterly horrified when they get to the end of this life and they meet the one that they call Savior face to face and he says, get away from me. I never knew you. And that's kind of a scary thought. Millions of people at this moment claim to have a relationship with Jesus because they said the prayer 20 or 30 years ago or, or some time in their lives, but they don't know him and they look nothing like him. And unfortunately, that includes not just the people outside the church, but also it includes people inside the church as well. Maybe even some here today. Is it you? Do you really know Jesus? Do you really know him? And how is that demonstrated in your life? So over the past 50 years or so, there's been a significant shift in the methods of evangelism, how we tell people about Jesus. Just in the last 50 years ago, which is probably where some of the 1950s, 60s answers came from. And I think what we've done is we've tried to condense the gospel into a nice bite-sized package so we can give a nice and efficient presentation. You know, we had walked around the doors and we wanted to tell people about Jesus with this nice, quick presentation, so hoping that we could get them to say the sinner's prayer before we left and win another one to Jesus. And I think as we look at evangelism methods, like if, you, if we've been in church circles for any amount of time, we've heard of things like evangelism, explosion, the Romans, the four spiritual laws, and things like that. And all of them, don't get me wrong, certainly had their purpose. And I know that many people here are here because of those methods, because they had a purpose and they worked. But I wonder if there might also be a better way. There might also be a better way because we have kind of turned this idea of following Jesus into nothing more at times than a transaction where we have this mentality of, of pray the prayer and you're in. Pray the prayer and you're in. You're going to go to heaven. Everything's great. God's good. All right. And we've, in doing this, we've often put so much effort toward getting people to say this prayer because we think it's the one pivotal moment where heaven comes down and the angels rejoice. And I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if that's really true. And even when we're sharing people or sharing Jesus with people, we have this sense of urgency where we can almost become kind of pushy and kind of pressure people because we want them to say this prayer so bad. We want this for them, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in the process, we can push people away because they're not ready. And they're not listening to some of the questions that they have, some of the concerns, some of the hurts that they've had in the past. And we can push them away. And I want to ask you this. When did Jesus push people? When did he pressure people into responding? 
Yeah. I don't think he ever did in the Gospels. We find him inviting, but he let them go their, their own way. They had the decision on whether or not they wanted to respond and follow him or they wanted to go their own way. There was no pressure involved. But he invited people, knowing that God was the one at work. The results are up to God. And so Jesus was patient with people just like he's patient with you and with me. Knowing that many would turn away and sometimes even push people away. He said some pretty crazy stuff knowing that they were going to turn the other way. And he did that. And he warned people to count the cost before stepping into something that they weren't ready for. Now we look at a verse like Romans 10.9. This is really one of those key verses where we're leading somebody to Jesus. It says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That seems really simple, doesn't it? So why am I trying to make this so hard? Darn pastors. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing. The word believe. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It means something significantly different in our setting than it did in Jesus and the apostles because we use that word believe as almost a synonym for think. It's basically mental agreement, cognitive assent. And we assent mentally to facts about God. And we think that if we agree with something, then that means we believe it. But that's not really the case because this kind of belief, it doesn't really require us to trust God with our lives. It ends up contributing to a distorted idea about faith that is completely disconnected from our everyday lives. Biblical belief is not simply agreeing that something is true. It's the equivalent of faith. Biblical belief equals faith. It's living out repentance. It's not just about mental conviction. It's not just agreeing in our heads, but it's a willingness to act on that mental conviction. Douglas Cheney said that you only truly believe that which moves you to action. You only truly believe that which moves you to action. And I'm going to, I think I've said this before as I've shared a couple different times. I'm in a cohort with Pastor John, and during the last several months, I've noticed a lot of areas or at least a significant amount of areas where I believe something in my head and I found out that my actions showed, yeah, I, I know this in my head, but it's different. I'm not living it out. I don't really believe it. And that's why my actions are showing otherwise. And we can get in trouble with ourselves sometimes. And we focus so much on this one piece of the gospel, the plan of salvation, trying to condense it into this nice little piece and millions of people mentally agree that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And because of that, they're convinced that they're going to go to heaven. But their actions show that they don't really believe it. And they think they have a get-out-of-hell-free card when they really have no idea the reality of their situation. And we as evangelicals, we like to tell people that we have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? We have a personal relationship with Jesus. And, and that's what makes us different from other religions. That's what makes us different from other denominations. Yet sometimes, if we're really honest, I know I've got some people really thinking here, but if, you, if we're really honest, how personal of a relationship is it sometimes? 
because we're taken through that step of praying the sinner's prayer, and then it's all about works. It's all about sin management. I have to do the right things. I've got to not do this. I can't do this. I've got to do this. And God is oftentimes put out of that equation completely because it's about how well we do. And I know for me, I've based my relationship with Jesus on how much I'm praying, which usually is just a one-sided conversation, and I'm telling him all my list of stuff, or how much I'm reading in the Bible, or how much I'm going to church or doing church stuff. And that's it. What kind of a personal relationship is that? It seems very one-sided. And then, when I didn't measure up to this level of expectation that I thought I should be at, I got down on myself, and I, I just beat myself up. I should have done that. I shouldn't have done that. What is wrong with me? I've got to do better. How can God love me? I keep messing up. Any of you ever felt like that? You've been there, or is it just me? Good, I see some hands. Good. And you know what that is? It's religious bondage. It's me trying to work my way into God's favor. It's me trying to do all the right things so that God will be pleased with me. That's not a relationship. Where is Jesus in all of that? So if we get back to this statement, Jesus is my Savior, right? It means so much more than what a lot of us have come to understand. And I noticed last week we had the Kid Connect video, which is super cute, by the way, eating chocolate bunnies and stuff. But I noticed one of the questions on there was, why did Jesus die on the cross? And all the kids said the right answer. They said to save us from our sins. Yeah, right. Even says that in the Bible. Good job. And we know that. But, you know, that can also become kind of a Christian response. Jesus came to die for our sins. What does that really mean? What does it really mean on a personal level? What do we understand? Is it simply that I can go to heaven when I die? Or is it more than that? So let's take a look. Uh, there is a sermon outline. Hopefully you all got it. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. It's not in any kind of order. I probably missed some things. Probably some of this stuff overlaps, and I'm sorry. I'm just not smart enough to make it all perfect. But if you want to follow along with me, we'll try to unpackage this a little bit. Okay? All right. Because Jesus is my Savior, my sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter how bad the things are that I've done. My sins are forgiven because Jesus is my Savior. When God, I'm sorry, when Paul tells Titus, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. It wasn't because of anything that we had done, but because of his loving kindness and mercy for us. My sins are forgiven. Because Jesus is my Savior, my debt has been paid. My debt has been paid. He paid a debt I could not owe. I owed a debt and I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Sounds like a familiar song. But Jesus paid the price for our sins. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that, and we have been redeemed. This is this idea of redemption, being set free 
for the payment of a price. Jesus paid that price for us. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Because Jesus is my Savior, my guilt and shame are gone. Isn't that good? How many of you often feel guilty and shame yourself when you do stuff and you mess up? All the time. Why? Obviously, we don't want to go and live sinful lives, but we're not. God doesn't want to give us guilt and shame. He doesn't want us to live in that sense. We're freed from that. And you know what? Sometimes, if we're completely honest, the church has been one of the worst offenders of this. Guilting and shaming people for the things that they've done. Because we want to produce the right result. And sometimes we get so focused on the result, on somebody living something out and doing the right things, that we miss the way of Jesus and we completely miss the heart. And if you've been hurt by the church or hurt by somebody inside the church, I I want to apologize. We don't want to do that. Jesus never shamed. He never guilted people into doing things or manipulating them to do what he wanted, but he invited them. And that's how we want to be. Our obedience comes from our identity in Christ. And sometimes when we go the wrong way and we start to do the wrong things, it's not because of anything other than that we've lost our identity. And we're finding our identity in places that are not Jesus. Anytime we have an obedience issue, it's an it's a identity, it's a crisis identity that we have. Because we're looking for identity, we're looking for approval and things in the wrong things and not in Jesus. But once we get that set and we're walking in Jesus, our obedience is naturally going to follow. You know what I'm talking about? So if we look at a couple examples in, in the Bible, we look at the, the woman who committed adultery, who had the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they wanted to stone her, right? And what did Jesus say? Yep, she shouldn't have done that. No. So him who has not sinned cast the first stone, right? And they all dropped their rocks. They all left. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? Has not one of them condemned you? Did he say, you know, you shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. But he said, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If we look at Peter denying Jesus three times on the, the night where he probably needed him the most, right? And then when Jesus resurrects, when he rises from the dead and he sees Jesus, like, did he say, like, Peter, you really let me down. How could you do this to me? We were, you followed me for three and a half years. How could you deny me? What is wrong with you? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? And sometimes we want to produce the right results and we don't go about it the right way. But Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. None. Our identity is in Jesus. And because of that, we have no guilt and no shame. We shouldn't feel that way. And any time that we do or get on ourselves, it's often the attack of the enemy trying to make us forget who we are. Because Jesus is my Savior, I have peace with God. I'm in right standing with him. 
I'm declared righteous. This is a term called justification. Justification refers to a standing that a believer has in Christ. It's a legal term in a courtroom setting, meaning free from guilt. Free from guilt. And it describes a changing in the standing of a person, not in their character, but in their standing. And rather than representing a guilty man who has never been pardoned, it represents an innocent man who has never done wrong. Is that cool? Represents an innocent man who has never done wrong. So in Jesus, because Jesus is my Savior, we are justified. We are in right standing with God, and we have peace with him. Paul says in Romans 5, Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. It's all because of Jesus. Because Jesus is my Savior, I have been reconciled with God. We've been reconciled. Paul says he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That's pretty cool. Because Jesus is my Savior, I am a new creation. I am a new creation. This is, comes to a theological term called regeneration. Regeneration happens at the moment that we decide to follow Christ. It's God bringing to life the dead capacity within us to love him. And where justification looked at a standing, regeneration is what changes our character. It's what changes our character. It's a transformation of a believer through union with Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. We're a new creation. Because of Jesus, we can live forever with God. We don't have to be afraid of death. We're going to live forever. Bill Kerwin likes to say he's eternal when we kind of pick on him for his age. And we are. We're going to live forever if we know Jesus. John 3.16, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's a familiar one, isn't it? Because Jesus is my Savior, I have been adopted as a son and a daughter of God. I'm adopted. I'm an adopted son and daughter. Well, I'm an adopted son. You might be an adopted daughter. I'm not a daughter, but you might be. And Paul says in Romans, You received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit. To affirm that we are God's children, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. He's adopted us. You know, and this reminds me of the story of the prodigal father in Luke chapter 15. When he had a wayward son, and he demanded his inheritance, and he ran away, and did all kinds of stupid stuff, spending and wasting his money on dumb stuff, and he realized what an idiotic thing he did, and he thought, maybe, I don't know what to do. I'm starving, but maybe my father will take me back as a servant. And he runs back to him, and the father sees him in the distance, and he runs, he runs to him, and he embraces him. And then what did he didn't say? Like, what did you do? What have you done? This is my son. This is my son who is lost and is found again. And that's his love for us as his sons and daughters, adopted. Because Jesus is my Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in me. 
we are empowered. Uh, he says in Romans chapter 8, Paul does, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. We'll get more on that, I think, uh, next week. As Pastor John shares, Because Jesus is my Savior, he is my advocate. He's my advocate. The Apostle John says, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. And because of Jesus, because he is my Savior, I can never, ever be separated from his love. Never. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's a pretty awesome thing because it just is. Because Jesus is my Savior, I have access to the Father. When Jesus died, the temple veil was torn in two. And we didn't have to go through a human mediator any long. We could go right to him. Paul tells the Ephesians, because of Christ. Do you see this? Because of Christ, because of Christ, because of Jesus This is who we are. This is our standing in him. But he says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Couldn't do that before. Jesus changes the game. Because Jesus is my Savior, I have an eternal inheritance. Peter says, we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of, of change and decay. And it's waiting there for us. What a glorious day it will be. When my Jesus I shall see. And because of Jesus, because of Jesus, I'm never alone. I'm never alone. God is always with me. Do you know that? Even when we feel lonely, even when you feel like nobody cares, if we just reach out, Jesus is there. When you're going through struggles, we're not alone. Jesus himself said this. He said, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And this is right before he was going to be ascended into heaven and he was leaving his disciples on this earth. But he said, be sure of this. I am with you always. I am with you always even to the end of the age. This is so much better than just get out of hell free card, isn't it? We're having a place to go when we die. Living Jesus is real life right now. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Jesus came to give us a life of fullness, not just for the afterlife, but for here and now to have a satisfying relationship with him, to know him, to be with him, to find our identity in him. And he challenges us, though, not to stay the way that we are. But he empowers us to live a full and meaningful life. 
John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. Are you walking in the fullness of Jesus? And as I look out, I know some of you are. And it's going to be a great day. You know, we have trials, we have issues, struggles that we go through life, but we have Jesus here. And what a great day it's going to be when we see him again face to face. And everything is made new. And there might be others of you here that maybe you've prayed the prayer at some point in your life. And you thought everything was okay. And maybe you're realizing that maybe maybe just because I said a prayer, that doesn't mean that I'm in the place where God wants me. Maybe you've never really had a relationship with Jesus. And he wants to invite you into that this morning. Because there's so much more. And that's good news. And some of you are here, and maybe you've been coming for a while, maybe this is your first time, but maybe you've never, ever made a decision to start walking, to pursuing, to enter into a relationship with Jesus ever. And, And there's, it's not a mistake that you're here. I believe God has brought you here for a purpose, because he's been pursuing you longer than you have ever realized. And he's inviting you into a relationship with his son. Yeah. A decision is only the beginning. It's just the beginning. We get to walk a long life here on earth with God. And so... And if everybody bow their heads and close their eyes, no one looking. I'm just kidding. It's kind of altar call kind of thing. For real, I want to invite you to respond. And maybe it doesn't look like an altar call. But I believe God has something for you. And it's just taking the next step. So wherever you are, maybe somebody has brought you today. They've brought you to church. And I would encourage you after the service is over to If you've got questions or you want to know more and you want to know what this is about, then talk to them. There's no reason they have to talk to a pastor or somebody that is, like, official to do this. Like, we're all sons and daughters of God, and we get to share and bring other people into the family. It's a cool thing. So talk to them. Ask questions. If you haven't come with anybody, you can come talk to me after the service. You can talk to probably a bunch of people. Pastor John's hiding back there with a notepad and paper critiquing. But come talk to me after service. Or you can take a connect card in front of you and you can write in there, I want to know more. In the back, there's a blue card in front that you can write in there, I want to know more. And if you do that, be sure to put some kind of contact information on there because sometimes people do that and we've got no way to contact you. That makes it really hard to follow up and have a, a discussion. But there's a next step and we want to talk with you about it. It's not just a simple plan of salvation, but there's so much more, and we'd love to hear your story, hear what God has done in your life, hear why you're here, and what's going on, and we want to share Jesus with you. So whatever that looks like for you, I invite you to take that next step. This isn't the end. It's only the beginning. All right? And next week, Pastor John is going to talk about Jesus as our sanctifier, and what that really means to live in the fullness. All right? All right, let's pray. Let's pray, for real. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. God, we thank you for your love that is so incredible, for your grace that has been given, though we have not deserved it. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And God, we thank you that that you walk with us, that Jesus being our Savior doesn't mean that we just have to live out this life in despair until we die and, and things are okay, but that that you want to know us now, that you want to walk with us now, that you want to enter into our daily life now. And Father, I pray that that you would just work in our hearts, that you would expose some of the things in our own lives and some of the things that maybe we don't quite understand and and put us on a pursuit of truth and knowing what it really means to, to walk in a relationship with you. God, I pray for every person here uh, that you would break down any walls, that you would uh, just do things in their life so that they can live in the fullness of Jesus, to truly know Jesus as our Savior. And God, have your way in our hearts right now. We pray in the mighty name of the one and only. Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.